Motopod, proudly supported by Roadskin, a UK label specializing in protective outerwear for motorcyclists. Modern biker clothing that you can wear all day long and engineered to save your skin. For the road, for life, visit roadskin.co.uk. To Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 745 for October 17th, 2023. I'm your host, Jim McDowell. Joining me tonight, only three time zones away from me, <laughs> as close as I think we've ever been and actually done a show, Rich, is Rich. Richard Jallet. You are in British Columbia, correct? I am. I'm in the fine city of Vancouver. Yes, and having a very nice time, although I brought the British weather with me. It's absolutely <laughs> chucking it down here this week so that, that bit's not so great but vancouver yeah as anybody that's visited will know is an absolutely superb place so very happy to be back here yeah i've never been i would love to go i mean the closest i think i've been is seattle okay and yep. i did i did enjoy seattle uh so but hey there was racing that took place from Mandalika, yep. which is the indonesian grand prix that's what we're here to talk about and we'll go through that and whatnot but i'd like you to know that if you like the show, please try to donate if you can. You can go to our website, www.motopodcast.com. Links on the upper right-hand side to Patreon and PayPal. If you can't donate, that's fine, but you still like the show, go to wherever you get this podcast from. Leave us a review and a like, and that'll help us get to more people in the show. And as always, please check out our partners, Roadskin at roadskin.co.uk. Now we got all that out of the way and the business end of it, Rich, I think we're just going to go straight to it. Let's get into yep. qualifying right into for, uh, there was not much going on in Moto3 qualifying. We'll just quickly figure out what happened. Uh, Toba, Vire, Rossi, Artigas, for, for Faroli, and Furasado are all in that first session. Uh, Vire gets through with Furasado. Adrian Fernandez, that was kind of a shock, and Watley all come out of there to get to the second qualifying session. A second qualifying session, uh, it just wound up with Marrera on pole, followed by Masia uh, and uh, David Alonso sharing the front row. Colin Vire on fourth, then Anshu and Forasada. So two of the guys coming out of Q1 go to the second row for that. But I think there's not much else in that. Qualifying, boring very much for those guys there. But there is a little bit of news we should talk about. Just It's Moto3 related, so we'll talk about it here before we go into the race. We had found out on race day that Suzuki had been asked to step down for two races set aside he did so and then promptly said i quit the team so he had left Leopard. that brought adrian fernandez into the fold to replace him there and everyone doesn't need to feel f- sorry for suzuki because he then turned around and immediately signed a contract to ride for the liquid molly husqvarna team next year and the only reason he could sign that contract is because one uh Sasaki has signed a contract to race in Moto2 with the VR46 Yamaha squad. A lot of speculation there that Sasaki is being lined up for a satellite Yamaha ride in MotoGP in 2025. Mm. So that's good news that Yamaha is at least 
thinking about potentially putting two more bikes on the grid with what team we don't know because the last two spots on the grid are for a factory team and not a satellite team so who's going to take the bikes i have no idea but i'll take it as a positive again rumors as they always are so that was how we started off the day of racing interestingly it was hot and was only going to get hotter throughout the day in mandalika but when we started off in this motor three adventure Marrero took off from the lead with Alonzo and Vire behind him, followed by Ortola, Holgardo, Forasato, and Masia. Uh, Sasaki actually had a crash on the sighting lap as they yep. went to the grid, which I forgot to mention. Shame on me. It's late here on the East Coast, folks. This is what you get. That was spotted by one Simon Crafer, who said that the team had jumped all over the bike and was trying to fix whatever was wrong with the bike there. I never saw footage of what Sasaki did to fall off. but They did show it. Yeah. They sh- okay, I, I don't remember just, it. Let's put it that I way. I think he just took a bit too much curb, Jim, and the front just went uh, on him. I don't know. You know, they tend to go around a little bit slower, I suppose, and they wouldn't be on a fully up-to-temperature tire on the sighting lap. But you do occasionally see it, but it's quite rare to see somebody bin it on that sort of first lap round to the grid isn't it so a bit embarrassing but it, it happens from time to time i talked to casey stoner about it because i think he was the last guy to lose it on a siding lap eh, that might have been a warm-up lap yeah, either way i was like yeah well jake dixon lost it in coach on the warm-up lap didn't he? it wasn't yep. the sighting lap i think so uh, yeah these things do unfortunately happen and it really did cost sasaki this one yeah it did because sasaki winds up being absolutely positively last into the first turn from there, uh, we find out that Ortola had a jump start, so he gets the double long lap of inconvenience, and he'd go to that. Uh, Holgarda would go to the front with Vire and Morera. Masia lurking as he seems to do in these races in that that four, five, six range with Alonso and Munoz as well. Munoz finally at the front end of the grid instead of coming through at the very end of the race. So that was a pleasure to see there as well. It's a tight and nasty little race. Holgarda Vire, Masia, they're all there. Uh, of course, uh, Anna Carrasco had a nasty little high side that happened at turn 10. She got that all wrong, and it was like front gone, save it, back end goes around, flicked her over the top. And uh, she went to the medical center for checks. She was released. It was a nasty bump on the head. She sort of came down on the shoulder, head more, maybe the back of the head. They're uh, definitely one of those ones where you need a new helmet because that one has been used up, as they like to say. Uh, The front four kind of got a little, got away a little bit, and then they started fighting again. And so then the second group of guys sort of caught back up again, kind of typical Moto3 as we've seen. With 10 to go, Holgardo was at the lead with Vire and Marrera. Uh, Munoz was there along with Masia and Alonzo and Anchu. All these guys now were pulling away from everybody else. This was going to be a fight between these six to get to the end of the race. Between laps 10 and 7, the only thing that really happens in this whole thing is that Ogden goes down with a... I can't remember if it was a low side or a high side. I didn't write it down in my notes for that one. But it gets interesting now. This is like essentially, I think they bottled up all their energy and decided that they would have full chaos... At the end of the race, we haven't seen one of these Moto3 races like this in the last few races. They've been sort of subdued in a way. I don't know if it's the travel time zones. These guys' body clocks aren't correct yet. But boy, oh boy, did things go crazy all of a sudden. With seven to go, Holgardo cuts the course at that, uh, I think it's the one, two, three, the five, six area. And I mean, he's way off 
writer's right. I, at first, he's I thought not even he was the green gym, isn't he? He's, no, he's not kind of build even that. So yeah, yeah, he's Bonkers. completely making his own racetrack at that point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, it was amazing. I was like, I was like, oh, you know, surely he's going to have to get a penalty for this, right? He, you can't literally go that far over there. And I thought, well, he hasn't gotten no track limits warning yet. But I guess if it's egregious, like it was, and then I thought, well, no, wait a minute, maybe we're not seeing this properly uh because it was from the helicopter and it was kind of hard to see what happened prior to him going off and i thought well maybe he got shoved over there maybe vire knocked him over there or something you know maybe he had a high uh a pseudo high side he came out of the seat let's say and needed to run into that space to actually correct himself apparently it was none of those as as immediately Race control says you have a long lap to which he then simply dropped into that on the very next opportunity that he was able to get in. He goes in there, but that left Alonzo, Masia, Vier, Munoz, and Forasado and Marrera fighting it out. But boy, did that kid Helgardo put the bit between his teeth. I think he was something like a second and a half or a little bit more, maybe closer to two seconds off of the pack in front of him and he just turned off some blistering like fastest laps to basically race himself all the way back into the pack by three laps to go so it took him two laps after having taking the long lap penalty to get back to the back into the lead group if you will now mossy at this point start to assert his uh dominance that we've seen over the last few races he has come to the four, and he's leading over Alonzo and Munoz. Now, Marrera seems to be very close to it, and you're wondering if the kid's going to suffer arm pump. It's a well-known thing that he is uh, prone to the arm pump. I do not think he's had surgery to correct the arm pump yet. I think they're trying to work it out with uh, you know, physical therapy, treatment, strength training, things of that nature, but I'm willing to bet he probably goes under the knife after the end of the season. Yeah. So it was good to see that he was still hanging on there. Holgado is at the end of the group, but then he races himself towards the front, but he does it by cutting the course again. So now he receives another long lap penalty because he took the shortcut at turn nine. So Holgado then basically doesn't respond to that call to the long lap, which given that there was like two laps left in the race was maybe a good call because you're going to get a time penalty for not having taken it. So why not try to see what's going to be there? And, you know, conspiratorially, cause I like it, you know, Holgardo seemed to try to do whatever he could to mess up Masia in the last two laps. It was like, well, if my race is ruined. I'm going to ruin your race too, buddy. And I don't think he did that. I think there's red mist that's there. And all of that, Rich. Do you think he was trying to do it on purpose? Uh, no, I'm more inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt, as you just did, Jim, and just say he was so kind of focused on trying to recover something. Yeah. Although this must be said, this was all totally self-inflicted. But yes. I mean, that it was a was it on the penultimate lap? I think he put that really hard move on Masia and really pushed him out wide. And that yes. really, that really did Masia <laughs> no favors whatsoever. And he couldn't really recover from that. I'm surprised. I don't know. I haven't really been able to see because I was traveling uh, to Canada, of course. 
uh, over the weekend and stuff. But whether he would have got a penalty that he might have to serve this weekend in Australia for that move on Massier, I'm not sure. He didn't knock him off. He didn't. I don't know if they touched, but he certainly sent him very, very wide with what was a pretty ambitious move. But yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think it was just a red miss thing. Yeah, I have not heard of him having to serve a penalty yet. I've not found anything official for that, but uh, it is possible that he will get that. So with Elgardo basically leading, and it doesn't really matter because he's not there, you go to the last lap, and again, that was his last chance to take uh, the long lap, but he chose not to. And again, and this is a good point. I think Simon Crafar may have said it on the on there, or it was Matt Bird, maybe. Hey, it, with all the crazy that was going on, and trust me, this is a fantastic, crazy race that's happening. Maybe he didn't even see his dash saying he had a long lap. Now, they were saying that there is like a LED board or something at the uh, start finish line. I mean, you got so much to look at as far as your lap board. You're looking for your pit board, trying to find it, read what's there, digest that. Look at the dash, not miss a gear, keep yourself on track. I don't know if you could look up and see that your number's on the board. And if you did, you may not know what it was for. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he may have just not understood that he had another long lap penalty. So like it or lump it, he was leading through the last lap, but they did kind of surpass him and go through. It goes all crazy to the end, but Marrero does wind up winning the race with Alonzo second and then Munoz. Vier has, I think, a career best fourth in the class. I mean, he is the guy for next year. I mean, yeah, he's really coming on strong. Yeah. Yep. Vier is coming on strong. Uh, it was Jose Antonio Rueda in fifth. Mossy would drop to sixth as a result of the incident you mentioned, Rich, where he was stood up hard by Holgardo and he just could not get it back. I mean, the track is very dirty offline there in Mandalika. And it uh, is very slippery and dusty. And I just wonder if it just kind of cooked Mossy's tires. And just he couldn't get the, uh, the dirt, the dust, the clag off the tires to get back to that racing form. And it's so much about rhythm as well, isn't it, Moto3? Because they race so close and so hard. And you, sort of, you can tell that they get in a groove. And I think it happened on the penultimate lap. So say with a lap and a half to go and haven't been pushed out like that. Dirty tires, as you say, Jim. And then kind of rhythm gone all the plans for the last lap, the last kind of couple of corners gone. He just wasn't able to recover. And it was, yeah, it was a bit sketchy, that move, I think, that Holgado put on him. But I, I guess that's Moto3. Every move is a sketchy move in Moto3, I think. Mm. Uh, so that is how they finished in the race. It does shake the championship up slightly. Because, oh gosh, where did Sasaki finish? I didn't even have... I think he was out of the points. Yeah, so... he was out of the points, yes. So I don't have it because he was out of the points. Uh, of interest, if you're wondering, Holgardo having gotten the three-second penalty, which was the equivalent time penalty for going through the long lap, dropped him all the way to 14th, giving him two what may or may not be very precious points in the championship. With the championship standings, Masias still leads, but he only leads on 209 points. That means Sasaki was able to vault over top of Holgardo and be only 16 points behind, having him not uh, scored any points at all in the race. Holgardo falls to third in the championship, 17 behind Masia, and only one behind Sasaki. Then it's David Alonso, Anchu, and Ortola, Morera, Rueda, Manos, and Nepas, the championship stance. It is a clearly Juan Masia's championship to lose 
Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think Sasaki or Helgardo have anything for him, but it's Moto3, and all it takes is one bad race. Somebody does anything uh, remotely stupid and puts you on the ground, and that championship it chases crazy it can again considering we are going to go to to australia next and then we will get a week off and then we will run the final three races no no we're on a triple no. header are we so on, we're had, in the middle of the triple uh so we've just had indonesia then we get australia then we're into thailand Thailand. yes sorry we've got to get through thailand so we're going to go to australia where it'll be much cooler and then we will go to thailand so this is going to be brutal on teams it's going to be brutal on us it's going to be brutal on the riders it is going to be probably the most horrifying six races five races now in a time span to win a world championship for all these guys it's just absolutely crazy so that is the crazy that was moto three rich i anything else that we want to talk about there i think that pretty much covered it all well i think we should just make note of the fact that it was first pole and first win for Diogo Moreira, who's been a long time coming to this result. Uh, you might recall last year when he was a rookie, he was tipped for the championship by one Maverick Vinales when they were all asked at, at the beginning of last season. So he's highly rated and he's had flashes of brilliance held back by this arm pump trouble uh, that you mentioned there, Jim. So nice to see him get a win on the board at long last. I think he might be going straight up to Moto2 next year. Uh, Ooh, I think he did have a Moto2 ride. Yeah, we'll have to check on that one. Um, we're we're going to have to do a very long, in-depth dive of where everybody's going after the season. Yes, indeed. We know I mean, where everybody is. I mean, the other comment really is, on the face of it, you'd think sixth is a bit of a disaster for Masia, but it's not because Holgado dropped to 14th with the penalties and, you know, Sasaki didn't even get a point because of his sighting lap crash. So it was a bit of a, not a let-off for Masia because Masia didn't really do anything wrong, but not a great result for him but nevertheless he still extended his championship lead and everybody else as you say i think is really relying on him hitting bad luck we had a mechanical back in austria if you remember the bike just kind of stopped so you know you never know what's going to happen in moto three and as you say this next series of races is brutal in terms of what it's going to take out of everybody so there's still a long long way to go in all of this um so i think that's probably pretty much everything to say, but it was a great race, but absolutely the last few laps were just yeah, sensational, really, but that tends to be the way with Moto3, doesn't it? But quite what Holgado was thinking when he did that massive course cut and then didn't voluntarily drop the time, because he would have been, you know, fine had he sort of dropped to the back of that pack. Um, not to say he wouldn't have got a track's limit warning and a long lap towards the end as he did, but yeah, craziness. I mean, I just wrote Holgado madness on my notes because there's no way he didn't know what he'd done. And he must know that rule. I mean, you must know that if you cut a course to that degree, I mean, he wouldn't have even triggered the sensors because there aren't sensors out where he went. So, I mean, that's how far off the track he was. So it was a bit of a head scratcher, really, that one. Yeah, the, the those last seven laps are just classic Moto3. And we have been missing that yeah. for the past few races. And those tracks that we've been at, they seem to throw up weird races. I mean, India was going to be different. We haven't ever been there before. Japan seems to produce dull racing. I really hate to say that, but I, I think most of the races there are dull. There's been some good MotoGP races, I'm not going to lie, but they're few and far between, mm. as far as I can tell. But it was great, as you said, to see him get the win, Marrera to get the win. Uh, and 
you know, it's going to be crazy going into this. And I guess we have to look forward to that. We have that to look forward to. That is the crazy of Moto3. We'll just go to Moto2 very quickly. Quickly through qualifying. Uh, Jake Dixon is in Q1 again with Ogura. So those are two really big names who shouldn't be there. They were joined by Lopez and Guevara and Baltus. There's different people there. But Dixon got through. Lopez got through. Jeremy Okoba did. And so did Bo Ben Schneider. So Ogura never even makes it into Q2 in Moto2, which is just given Ogura's, fir- Ogura's form of late, that kind of shocked me. I wasn't really expecting that. I'm like, okay, yeah. Him and yet four guys are going to go through. Dixon and Agura are probably going to make it. Yeah. However, think, they, yeah. they did not. The second qualifying session was essentially a letdown. Um, there was nothing going on. It's sort of everybody went out, set a time, and it sort of stood and didn't go anywhere. Sort of like we saw a long time ago where the where Moto2 was qualifying late in the afternoon in that two. 2 33 o'clock area and the track is super hot and they could never go any faster uh than what they did previously but now since the schedule is, has changed and you have moto gp sprint in the afternoon those guys are running earlier in the in the morning and so the times are definitely different um Kenet, who had been fast the whole time in practice he'd been very fast throughout it went to pole followed by gonzalez then salach uh pedro acosta would qualify on the fourth row he had a couple of laps going that would have maybe put him on the middle of the front row, maybe third, but he couldn't put it together. Uh, victim of a yellow flag with Arbolino going down, victim of his own running off course and having a lap scratched. Those kind of things that tend to happen to you uh, as you go along in this qualifying. But he, everybody thought that Alcosta would have race pace. Uh, he was followed, or sorry, I should say he was joined with Aldiger and Chantra on that second row. Dixon would be seventh as a notable, and Arbolino, not having a great time in Moto2 right now, would start the race from 10th. Now, interestingly, at the beginning of the race, uh, Simon Crafer was talking with the guys from Dunlap, and Dunlap strongly encourage you to not use the soft Dunlap tires and that you should be on the medium or the hard compounds because of the heat. Uh, what were they saying, Rich? Uh, they were getting something close to 60 C on the track. Uh, yeah, I could imagine. Crazy. Uh, again, from, you know, again, I think this is the second time we've been here now. And this time it wasn't raining and nasty. So you got to see a lot of helicopter shots. It's in a very beautiful location. It is, if you think Phillip Island is by the sea, people, no, <laughs> that's not even close. Uh, this one is literally at the sea, which was quite entertaining to watch those 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 shots. But the thing is that from the helicopter, you realize there was no clouds. There is no shade. There is no anything. And the track was just getting beat down on. So this is going to become a theme with tires that, hey, recommendations are going to be made. And some people are going to heed those recommendations and some people aren't (laughs) going to heed those recommendations and craziness can ensue by that. At the start of the 22 lap race, Kinect got a whole shot, but Pedro from the second row, of course, he's sort of starting on what I would call the more clean lines. The traction is uh, much uh, higher there than it would have been if he was starting in the middle of the row or to the inside or to the inside, just because of them coming back across the setup for the first turn. He happened to be in the, 
prime spot to be rubber on rubber, much like a drag racer, to get the ultimate grip to go down there. He led into turn, Pedro that is, led into turn one, but Kenneth went right back by again. Uh, Arbolino sprinted from 10th to go 4th, and in the back we had a crash that involved Lopez and Sora at uh, turn one. And eventually, Jeremy Alcoba was issued a double long lap penalty for having caused it. Now, if you go back and watch it, as we did much, much later on during the race, uh, because there was really plenty of time for us to go back and see things that happened earlier. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, again, Jeremy sort of uh, needs a, maybe a talking to you because there's some overly aggressive riding by him. And he has been the root cause of several big accidents at the beginning of a Moto2 race so uh i think maybe an adjustment of attitude uh might be required he didn't exactly showering himself in glory in moto 3 either if you recall so i mean in fairness to the guy on this particular occasion jim i mean it's always a little bit hard to pick out the the fine detail from the helicopter shots but he did appear to get a bit squeezed and a bit stood up going in and that kind of set off a bit of a chain reaction but i think at this stage race direction came down quite hard just because he's always involved in this stuff on the first corner of lap number one so you'd have to say that even though it might have been a bit of a harsh penalty on aggregate with everything else that's gone on this year probably well deserved uh yeah you are being served a penalty for your prior transgressions as well yeah uh, so it had that feel about it didn't it yes uh, the judge the judge has not looked kindly upon you because you have a list of priors that's quite lengthy yeah uh, so Canon and acosta have a little bit of a ding dong back and forth at the beginning of it arbolino is in fourth as we said so he's trying to do damage control having started in 10th chancha's right there dixon had made it into the top six now slatch crashed he got nerfed by uh, ayagura and ayagura got the long lap now i will say this about uh, race control and penalties for aggressive riding and whatnot. It seems as though we sort of settled upon a consistent pattern. Finally, if you make a move on another rider and you cause that rider to go down and you yourself do not go down 95% of the time, you're going to receive a long lap penalty for having uh, rough riding or irresponsible riding. I believe is a term that they actually use. Yes. However, if the two bikes go down together, it seems as though race directions calls it a racing incident and we move on. So as much as we have been talking about this all year long, some consistency by them should be applauded. And I am going to stand here and say, at least I think race control has at least got a consistency thing going, which is better than the no consistency. Things have improved without a doubt in recent races because we haven't really been although we've been told not to do this too much and understandably so because we and, and i in particular would sort of go off on a bit of a rant about this so the last few races there haven't really been any incidents i think that really kind of got my ire up anyway so yeah i think and and that clarification on why certain things get a penalty and others don't and again this was mentioned i think by simon crafar makes a lot of sense to me I'm sure if you both go down and it's because you've torpedoed somebody, then for that kind of an incident, you would get a penalty. But if it's just a racing incident, and but you both go down, then penalty served in a way. And I think that's about right. Yeah, I agree. I think you're right. I think if you torpedo somebody, you're getting a penalty. But if you're in there deep and the front end collapses because you went in late, 
that's a racing incident. That's the risk that you take by going up the inside. And it's the risk that the guy on the outside is taking because he's hanging there with you. So yeah, fair play to that. So again, I think when you do well, you need should be commended for it. And I do believe race direction has been very good of late. So I will mention it just for yeah, that reason. I, I, I completely agree with you on that. Oh, Acosta is now pulling away. Um, unfortunately, no one is going to see Pedro Acosta at all for for the rest of this particular race. He is gone. He just puts down a blistering pace the rest of the way. Kenet uh, is trying to go with him. And there was a lot of hoopla, especially from Cito Pons, that Kenet was going to get break the duck. He was going to get his first win. They had race pace. Nah, the 19-year-old had you covered, bud. Sorry. And that's kind of how it went. Um, Kenet would be slightly closer on a lap here and there, and he would cut the lead by a tenth. Acosta would simply look at the pit board and go, okay, I need to go a tenth faster this lap, and he would. It was a very controlled and measured race by Acosta to get to the end. Uh, people were thinking that tires were going to fall off. Uh, blistering could have been a potentially a problem. It did not seem to be a problem at all for Acosta. He simply would throw down a fast lap whenever he needed it to get back in there. Now, with that having been said that that's what's happening up front, Dixon and Arbolino had quite a battle that we got to watch a good port of it, good portion of. Dixon was wide into the and wide into turns and then would run off and then he would go back by Arbolino, uh, you know, they and uh, Dixon would be go by one time, I think, pointing to the rear tires if maybe he had tire trouble. I never found out that if he did, I'm not sure if you know, Rich, if they said anything that you may have caught that I might have missed. No, I no, I didn't really pick up on anything at all, Jim. It might have been because I was asleep, because <laughs> this was not a race to really keep you awake, was it? But no, no, there's like I said, there's really nothing there. I uh, I I did think that the Dixon Arbolino battle for the for three or four laps that we had in the middle of the race was was pretty entertaining, and until Dixon did run wide and then he came by pointing at the rear tire, uh, you know, was it tire trouble? Was it something else? I'm not sure. Was he just saying, "Hey, why don't you just follow me and we'll try to catch the guys in front"? Not sure. I was surmising it might have been tire trouble due to the heat and recommendations that had been made by Dunlap uh, for the tires that they should be on. Um, Outiger at the very end throws a little bit of interest into this. Now, Acosta's gone. He's done. He's going to win this. He's broken the back of back of Kinnett. But Outiger had things going at the end and on a track that, with the way it is very flowy, should favor the Bossacora chassis. And it did seem as though Outiger had the speed at the end of it. He may have even gotten by Kinnett if the race had been a lap or two longer. Alas, he would he would not get by. Uh, and the race would end with Acosta winning, Kinnett being second, Outiger third, Dixon would ride home in fourth, and uh, lo and behold, Manuel Gonzalez in fifth, Mr. Fifth. <laughs> and Dixon got him on the last lap, I should say. It was a, uh incredible last lap by Dixon that we did not get a chance to actually see, but he did run down um, Gonzalez. Gonzalez may have had a bit of trouble, He tire trouble. He may have ran the tire down a little bit, and that allowed Dixon to get there. But still, uh, heads up by Dixon to keep his head in it and not settle for anything, and he went to get you know to get fourth as well. Arbolino would uh, finish in sixth, which helped his championship chase in there. So that's your top six in that one. Um, we shall look at the points in this one. 
Acosta is leading now by 65 points over Arbelino. Acosta has gotten stronger and stronger as his championship has gone on. And I think we saw him sort of flounder a little bit in the midseason, if you will. Maybe a bit of distraction because of the, are you going to MotoGP? I have a contract that says I go to MotoGP. Because once that sort of got settled after, and I think he knew where he was going after, or at Silverstone, which was a summer break, right? Uh, first race after summer break. Yeah, I think he knew because from there on, Acosta has just been stronger and stronger and stronger. And he may not be qualifying on the front row, but he's in the first two rows. And that's important to win in Moto2. And the kid has shown consistency and he can just put his head down and go. And it is pretty impressive to watch. It reminds me a lot of Mark Marquez when Mark Marquez was in Moto2. And he would just lay down the laps after lap after lap and just dominate you. It seems eerily, eerily similar to my eye. It would suggest as well, Jim, that with a team like IO, which we know is a top team, if not the top team in Moto2, it's fair to say. But the fact that Acosta, as you say, doesn't, put it on pole but is so good in the races does suggest as well that he is good with bike setup okay team around him to help him with that but you know he always seems to have race pace and that's what wins you championships and so if he carries that forward into moto gp once he's got a bit of experience under his belt that'll be interesting to watch i don't know if he's good technically i mean obviously we, we just don't know that but it would it suggests that to me Smart observation, Rich. I think you're right on that, right on the button that the kid obviously has some setup skills. I I think we kind of talked about that when he's in Moto 3, just the way he could ride on the front end. Like, you know, that, that setup is unique to him and what he wanted to do. The other thing about Acosta here that I like is he's sort of on the Rossi plan. Rossi came into 125s, spent a year learning, won a world championship, moved to the 250s, spent a year learning the bike, the tracks won a world championship and when he won his 125 title dominant fashion when he won his 250 title dominant fashion he moved yeah. to 500s and spent a year learning how to ride that bike and then dominated the last year of 500s so acosta seems in my eye to my eye doing sort of the same thing again great team io but you still have to be able to get you i think at that level you really can't jump on and ride a bike and be as successful as Acosta is if you aren't good at the setup or conversely, maybe you are very good at communicating what the motorcycle is doing to your crew chief and your crew chief can make very intelligent decisions about what to do with the suspension or what to do with gearing or maybe chassis length, moving the rear tire back in the swing arm, dropping the forks and the triple trees, something of that nature. And we know he has unbelievably good feel from what he was doing on the Moto3 bike, and that has translated through now to the Moto2 bike. And he doesn't crash very much. Uh, he did in the first half of his first season, it's true, but that was the learning phase as he understood what to do. So feel, technical capability and support and communication, it's a lethal combination, and that's why he's six job points up the road now. Yes, it's a lethal combination when you have all that stuff clicking together and everybody's functioning on three cylinders. Yeah, <laughs> nicely done. Yeah, thank you. Oh, so that is Boto 2. Uh, I don't think there's anything else to cover there, Rich. It was it was a snoozer. 
Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I hinted at it a minute ago. I mean, I mean, if you do suffer badly from insomnia, then I recommend popping this on and it might well cure you. But other than that, uh, I mean, yes, there was a little bit of racing going on with Dixon and Aldega was good. But Connect, uh, not Connect, sorry, Acosta just was making everybody look a little bit ordinary at the moment, isn't he, really? So, yeah. But, you know, more power to him. Yeah. Hey, that's what your job is to do. That's what he's paid for. Yeah. That's what he's paid for. It's why he's getting, that's why he is going to be on a MotoGP bike. I, um, I think it would be shameful if KTM didn't figure out a way to put him on a MotoGP bike just for the fans. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we know he's, we know he is on one now. So, I mean, yeah. that's done deal, isn't it? So, done yeah, something very much something to look forward to. Yes. Oh, let's talk MotoGP. Qualifying is interesting for me. There's a lot that goes on in this one. First of all, we have to understand that Benyaya is in the first session. So your championship leader is in that first session. And if you watched any of the practice sessions or just highlights of the practice sessions, you kind of got the impression that Benyaya could not come up with a setup that worked for him, whether it be electronics and how much uh, uh, engine braking we're using into turns. If it was a setup, uh, you know, I think that the flowing nature of this circuit requires the the Ducatis to be set up in a different way than their sort of base stock setup to get the maximum out of them. Because I think the Ducati is very much more a point and squirt kind of bike. And admittedly, I think 80% of the circuits are a point and a squirt kind of uh, type of configuration. With that said, we had Ben Yaya in the first one, along with Nick, uh, Nakagami, Paul, uh, Augusto Fernandez, and Marini, who had his shoulder, had his collarbone plated, as we spoke about last episode. So they're there. Halfway through, Benyaya was third, and it was Zarco and uh, Morbidelli who were going to go through. The Yamaha looking good. The question came out, this was Benyaya on his second run on a U-soft? Now, that's what was said initially. I couldn't believe that he would even remotely think about going out there having been third fastest and be on a soft tire. It was later confirmed that he did go with a new soft uh, that was there. So he at least had a fresh rear rear in there, but Marini would take a track record and he would go on to take the first place to get out of there. There was no Benyaya. He did not get through and Zarco who had a chance to go through uh, basically fell at the fast turn 11 in what was a very fast crash, which resulted in the bike flipping through there which was crazy that Benyai did not go through. Like he could not go through. He got, he got gypped on it and it was just crazy that he couldn't go through. Uh, it was, I was shocked. I did see, although I didn't see qualifying again, because of the, the travel and, uh, and it was on like super early in the morning in the UK. I did see a few clips from the practice sessions across the Friday and stuff. And you see this with Banyar a little bit. I mean, well, there's two things. First of all, yeah, he, he this kind of rear skipping problem was back, and he's been suffering with that. Clearly, the Ducati uses the rear a lot to slow down, and he seems to have been suffering, and it does seem to be him rather than anybody else with the rear off the ground, but almost like a rear chatter in a way. I mean, it's not that, but couldn't can't quite get the rear to contribute to slowing the bike down. So he was going wide a lot, and plus it was very slippy offline. And he has this kind of... Although he's the world champion, he, he does have this tendency to 
kind of look as if he's unraveling a little bit. So going in and you can see people sort of backing off him when he walks into the pits, uh, which is a bit of a problem, really, because at that point you need to be sort of galvanizing together and fig- trying to figure out what the problem was, but or is. So there was a lot of that going on, so it seemed, through Friday and Saturday. And I, I mean, I mustn't jump ahead to the most GP sprint, but by the end of Saturday, you, you were starting to think, this guy might well be out of the championship at this point because he looks as if his head's gone. I mean, obviously, more fool us to sort of jump ahead, but because things would, would can very easily turn around. But so, yeah, he was in all sorts of sort of strange trouble through the practice days and through qualifying. Yep. So the pendulum of momentum sort of swung towards Jorge Martin. There's yeah. a lot of cameras on Martin when Benyai did not go through that next session. And Martin is sort of, been the king of qualifying he's sort of the king of the sprint you're thinking the track that's very one line this is going to be difficult for Benyaya to get to the front and well holy heck let's at least figure out what's going to happen here now Bezeki had a crash in the, in the second session at turn 16 and then Martin went down so wow here in the span of roughly 18 to maybe 20 minutes you had this up and down roller coaster of momentum that now had swung back because with martin having crashed uh you know he sort of just went wide on the curb which everybody both martin and benyaya both had very distinct problems at that turn at the turn 16 and the tricky turn 10 they both of them again like you a great description that you use rich the almost rear end type chatter that both of them uh there although benyaya is more with the rear chatter martin is more of the front end not wanting to stay planted and tends to fold under him as he goes down. Marquez fell down at turn 16. Uh, this is a crazy session that eventually left us with Marini with another sub 130 lap with a broken collarbone. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> uh, superhuman effort to be on pole. Vinales looked very good and he would be second quick. Aleish would be on the front row. Uh, that was like my tip to who was going to win because, wow, Aleish there and looking fine throughout practice and race pace as well. And, and Vinales having race pace as well. I was like, wow, this could easily wind up being a one to Aprilia show here. But Quattraro snuck in there for fourth, showing that if the track is fast and flowy and there's nobody in front of him, he can do the business with a bike that has no business being anywhere near where it is. It, because for reference, Morbidelli came out of that second session, uh, sorry, out of the first session to get into the second session, and he was 15th fastest. Brad Bender would be fifth. Martin would come down, get on another bike. Uh, he didn't have any soft fronts left. So, or since he had to go to his other bike, he didn't have a soft front to be on that bike. As a probably a better way to say it. So he had a hard front for qualifying, which would have, which made his life difficult leaving him there in sixth but hey he's on the front two rows things are probably going to be pretty good for him at that point so oh that's qualifying again kind of lengthy for qualifying but there was so much momentum going back and forth between the two i felt like it needed a little bit of a bigger discussion there we must go on to the sprint so at the sprint marini would get the whole shot and then uh followed by vinales marquez having a good start along with quattro and then bender of course Marquez would fall off at turn at turn 11. This is a theme that we seem to have going for him. 
Uh, Quattro was was a rolling roadblock. I think everybody had lined up behind him, uh, but Martin got by and was starting to assert his dominance. He chased down Aleish and Ben. Uh, sorry, Aleish and Bender. Brad Bender are down. Aleish folded the front, and then he just went right into Aleish, and they both or Aleish went right into Bender, and they both went down at that point. Again. There was no penalty. There was no long laps given to anybody. Racing incident. Correct call. Moving yep. forward, uh, yep. Vinales took some time at the front with Marini and uh, Martin. Quattro fourth. Martin got by Marini, and question is, could he have caught Vinales? Well, it took a little bit of time. It took a few laps to get there, but Martin showed some patience, worked his way by, and basically waited for Vinales to go into tire trouble, which he had. Martin got by him and Vinales was definitely in trouble. He was slowing down as he was as he was going along in the sprint and wasn't maintaining. But it finished off with Jorge Martin inflicting basically the maximum amount of damage he possibly could on Pekka Benyaya by winning. Marini for VR46, having lasted half a race distance with a freshly played at collarbone. And then Marco Bezzecchi finishing on the podium in third with a played at right collarbone i think i think marini's is a left and either way they have like one functioning collarbone between them according to simon crafar a fabulous <laughs> ride by bezecchi i mean the pain's got to be through the roof with that vinales fell back to fourth because of the tire troubles that he had quattro fifth then dg antonio bastianini who passed vignaya with like one lap to go i think or at the very end of it uh to get the to push his teammate back and then Miller was ninth, and that's as far back as we have points. At the end of the sprint, the points are Martin at 328, Benyaya at 321, and it's a seven-point swing. Momentum, Jorge Martin. We go to the race on Sunday. Michelin, the riders are urged to use a medium or hard rear tires for the race to avoid a blistering or performance drop-off. Or they said if you had uh, scrubbed in a set of softs that were used from maybe one or two laps in qualifying, use those softs because they've had a heat cycle in them, and then they should be okay. Aleish would start on the soft in the race to see what would happen. He, he took a punt, right, just mm -hmm. to see what could happen. Mar, uh, Martin got a hole shot. Like, that hole shot device was crazy i that new one is wicked and he had a whole shot and head of vinales quattro and marini bender and then benyaya had moved up to seventh from his lowly 13th starting position so benyaya had to be aggressive he was going to have to try to get to the front and he did very well to get as many places as he could on the, at the start when two laps benyaya had murked his way to third as he had gotten by quattro the power of the Ducati is going to help you do those kind of things, but it was quite impressive how Benyaya put his head down and fought for tooth and nail for every position that was there. He did a big dive into ten. I think he passed both Bender and Marini there mm. at ten. It was a, he was way to the inside and he somehow got it stopped. Somehow got it turned. I mean, it's a dirty. That's a he was on the dirty line and he was able to stop it and make it go stop and then go. And I was really impressed by that. I'd be fascinated to know, Jim. Did he just have a an extra portion of something for breakfast? 
Did somebody give him a bit of a talking to? I, I just wonder how that Peko Banyar on Sunday turned up as compared with the one that we saw across the rest of the weekend up and, you know, a completely different rider. I mean, you would not think it was the same person. So I'd, I'd love to know, obviously we won't know, but yeah. Did, did he just have a good night's sleep? Did he talk to himself in the mirror? You know, what did he do to sort of sort himself out? Cause he just looked completely different rider. I mean, maybe they changed something settings wise on the bike as well. And he felt more, comfortable i didn't see what happened in warm-up and it's not a very long session but perhaps they found something i think they corrected the electronics and gave him what he needed a happy rider is a fast rider a comfortable rider is a wickedly fast rider and i think they found comfort and that's all it takes sometimes yeah oh uh mark uh marquez would go down and turn 13 so the theme continues (laughs) falls off the honda continually Oh, Bender and Oliveira, they get together at turn two. Oliveira uh, runs off. Uh, Bender loses a wing in that. And then Bender would get a long lap penalty for that because he did he did not uh, he did aggressively knock Oliveira off of the circuit. It was a deserved penalty. He took it. And we go on from there. Then high drama appears with 15 to go. Martin crashes. He was gone. Martin had this in the bag and he crashed. Now it's a tricky circuit. It was a small, it was a small mistake. It was millimeters of difference. Front end folded up, down he went, done. Jorge Martin out. I mean, he had a three second lead. He did start on a soft front where Benyaya and the others were at least on a medium or a Benya or in Benyaya's case, a hard front. So given the temperature, right or wrong, we'll never know, but it doesn't matter. Martin's out of the race. I have got a comment to make on this, Jim. I mean, all of the all of the body language, all of the signals from Martin were that you know he just made a mistake. And so I'm not saying that there was a bike issue, but from the way I looked at the incident, and I perhaps would need to go back and look at it again in terms of the, the few different angles, but he did appear to be a good half a foot offline when he tipped it into that right-hander. So, I mean, maybe it's just a tad dirtier out there or whatever reason, but I, I think it, what I can't quite understand is why he was offline like he was. Now, it might have just been a, just a mistake. Is it Was it something, you know, that electronic that pushed the bike a bit wide? His reaction afterwards would, would suggest not, because he, as I said a minute ago, he looked like a guy that was just beating himself up because he knew he'd screwed up. But that was a really, really weird crash, particularly so because we haven't seen this used to be his big weakness, didn't it? And we haven't really seen this for quite some time from uh, him. So yeah, curious one that, but you just never can tell, can you? Yeah, it was hot. Martin this time having been through India and being extremely high, extremely, I'll get it out, extremely dehydrated, was running the tube in the bottle up to the helmet. Yep. I am wondering, because it's from 10, the hard braking kind of a squirt over to 11, I'm wondering if Martin was trying to get a drink. The race is, you know, about uh, eight laps in or so, six, nine, yeah. It's a few laps in, uh, so seven, you know, we're close to halfway at 15. 
And I'm wondering if he was wanting a drink. And that was just that little bit that got him offline. Just yeah. a bit of a distraction, just a little bit. If he wasn't trying to get a drink, is it just the heat? Is he just distracted that little bit? I mean, if it's that hot and you're sweating and you happen to get a sweat bead that forms on your forehead and rolls down into your eye and you got to blink it out one or two, that's going to put you off. Yeah. yeah. It's these little things like that, that I wonder about what may or may not have happened. I mean, I think that's why like Bezeki, Ben Yaya, they sort of have like that sweat band mm. uh, kind of a thing that they use before they put their helmet on. A lot of writers have that or use it when it's very hot. Uh, Martin doesn't, but you know, it's everybody's preference about how you're comfortable or whatnot. I'm speculating, but those are things that I know that I've I've been through. Just, you know, the sweat, sometimes it's really hot. You just can't blink. You you can't get your eyes to, your eyes become dry very quickly. Um, it's just one of those things. And it just a momentary blink longer than you want because you're thinking like, I got to clear that vision and you just miss where you are. Yeah. Because it, it wasn't one of those crashes, Jim, where, you know, the rider's kind of looking bewildered because they've gone through the turn like they've been through it every other time on that race and it just goes you know he was i'm sure of it and, and perhaps a few listeners will kind of chip in with their comments in one form or another but he did look you know a good few inches offline to me so yeah your distraction theory a drinking bottle thing that's a good one I'd, again we'll never know but um no. yeah be fascinating to know if that was the cause of it because something clearly happened to put him out there and then the minute you're out offline like that at that track in particular you, you're going down and he you know that bike <laughs> went down hard yeah yeah felt sorry for the bike that's for sure zarko then went down a few laps later at turn 11 sort of a very similar crash to what he put down in qualifying uh, yep. so hasn't he hadn't learned his lesson there i guess uh vinales was getting closed down was leading and being closed down very quickly by by, by Benyaya. Now Benyaya seemed to have the bit between his teeth, sensing that the fact that his pit board and he saw Martin crash, that he had now a chance to inflict maximum pain on Martin in the championship. Quattararo was hanging on to a podium at this point, being followed by Miller, DG Antonio with a great ride, and then Bezeki, the the walking wounded, if you will, there at the end. With uh, eight laps to go, Benyaya would get by Vinyala's. Quattraro was closing in on the both of them. I think Benyaya kind of forced the issue with Vinyala's because they were being closed down on by Quattraro, and Quattraro was coming very quickly. Pitboards went out. I'm sure dashboard messages went out to Benyaya. Hey, you need to dispense with the Aprilia and get on with this. And he did. Benyaya would go on then to win the race. Vinales would hold off Quattraro to take the second spot. It was close, but he was able to, but you know, Quattraro was able to hold on to it. After that, it's Gigi Antonio fourth because Vinales, I thought, was going to get nipped by Quattraro there at the end. He didn't. It was a great last lap. He, Quattraro tried everything, but you know, that's just how it goes. Bezeki, the walking wounded, would be fifth. Then, you know, Bender had recovered from his long lap penalty to sixth. He beat his teammate Miller. And then Bastiani, Rins, and Aspargaro finishing out your top 10. This then shakes up the championship again because in the, in the course of about 24 hours, Benyaya went from being down seven points to being up by 18 points. It was fascinating. 
So Benyaya is back on top at 346. Martin 18 behind. Bezeki 63. He's done. This is a two-horse race yeah. for who's going to be there. Bender showing how good the KTM is in fourth. I mean, he but he is 135 points behind. I don't know if Bender needs to be more consistent or if KTM needs to find just that little bit more to allow Bender to be on the podium or be at the front, or if it's a combination of all of that plus maybe better qualifying that Bender needs to do. But KTM now has, I think, a better chassis with the carbon fiber one. Bender, I think, likes that chassis. And I do think it does give them a fair bit more edge grip, which is what he's looking for. So I'm hoping Bender could next year be a little farther up in the championship. You know, maybe not not necessarily be higher than third or something like that, but at least be closer to the front than the 134 points, 135 points that he's behind right now. Alesha yeah. is there in fifth, and then his teammate Vinales is in sixth. Uh, it is a two-horse race, Rich, and I'm telling you, this is going to get wild and crazy when we go to Thailand. Uh, the, it, well, I think we're going to see ups and downs again. I just think how much I opined about how much the sprint race is going to suck. It is. It hasn't. There have been boring sprint races. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Uh, yeah. But this is extra points paid out in every sprint has helped Jorge Martin in a way that I did not see possible. And it has proved that turned this championship into a very close and tight championship. One of the closest ones we've had this late in the year in MotoGP. And I'm going to go with almost a decade, if not maybe a little bit longer. Well, certainly it's going to go, you, you can foresee that this will go all the way down to Valencia in November in terms of who's going to win this championship. Mm-hmm. I, I would I would predict at this point, because it is very much punch counter punch kind of territory at the moment, isn't it? It is, yes. And, the, and they're, generally speaking, they're both sort of finishing top six. It's just a question of who's ahead of the other. I mean, obviously the big change here was that Martin binned it. So hence there's been a big point swing, but you know, you just anything could happen in Australia. I mean, this time of year, I think it's back end of the summer there, isn't it? So it can be pretty chilly and, and it can be a bit wet at Phillip Island at, at this time of year. So weather will become a factor in some of these races as well. Uh, that will clearly be a, a risk factor in Thailand where it can be sort of monsoonal kind of conditions as we saw last year. And Valencia itself is going to be potentially pretty chilly and could be quite damp or or wetter than that. So there's all sorts of jeopardy ahead. So this one's not going to be over till the very last lap, I don't think. Yeah, this one's going to go down to the wire kind of. I was trying to think back, and I think I'm right, that the last time we saw a... Moto GP championship settled at the last race was 2006 with Hayden and Rossi, or was there one in between in there somewhere? Because um... I was thinking, I was trying to think about Stoner's 2011 championship, whether he did it on the last race or it was at the race before. I can't remember um, that one. I was thinking, I was thinking there might have been a Rossi one in there somewhere that was the last race between like took him and a lot him and Lorenzo. Yes, might have been was in there like one. I think was that's the 2015 one or something. So maybe 2015 the last, is the last one. The last race of 2020, which Mir ultimately won the championship. Did he have to finish sort of somewhere in a points paying position to you win it? You could be right. I think I you think might that be right one on that one. Did go to the last race. It wasn't terribly exciting, but I think Mir had to finish like ninth or something like that, and it was tense. 
I'm pretty sure that one went down to the last race. I think it has happened more recently than you're thinking, but I yeah, don't I have so. a great memory for this sort of thing. No, neither uh, do I. I mean, because I'm <laughs> I sort of remember the Marquez years where he was just he won by like 150 thousand points. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it's like I thought they go all, and then you know I tend to remember Hayden's championship in 2006 just because it's an American. Yeah. Um, in there, you know, and then I'm like, oh, well, there's got to be something in between. And I was thinking, well, there's got to be like a Lorenzo slash Rossi. That's probably the last one. But I think what's going to make this one different is that they're going to have to really fight for the win because it isn't going to be one of those things where, oh, hey, I just got to finish fourth or I got to finish fifth. This is going to be who finishes in front of who yeah. type style stuff. Uh, which I think is going to make it for to be very interesting. Uh, and there's a bit I would also add to that, Jim, that you know Martin is on a satellite squad. Okay, he's on a works bike, and we know he's got the bang up to date whole shot device, for example. So he's not on any sort of machinery deficiency, I don't think. But there's a lot of bragging rights to be had here if he was to win over the works entry. I mean, that would be a, a pretty unusual happening. So. There's a lot of pressure on Banyar and the Works Ducati squad because although we didn't really touch on it, in the sprint, the fact that Bastianini finished in front of Banyar could potentially be a bit of an own goal later in the season. Now, I'm not advocating for team orders because I don't think they have any place in racing of any form, and certainly not in motorcycle racing. But, you know, in a, a championship this tight, it wouldn't have been hard to foresee Ducati trying to get Bastianini behind Banyar. And it didn't happen, obviously. And those sorts of points, there might only have been a couple, but they can be crucial when they do the final adding up at the end of the season. So, yeah, we'll see. See how, see how it all transpires. Yeah, um, everybody needs to sort of kind of calm down on the Martin, on the indie team being a world champion in the premier class. It has happened before. Kenny Roberts in 78, that was the U.S. Yamaha team. It was not the Japanese factory Yamaha team, although Yamaha did start to support Roberts late in the year and give him updated kit and equipment to win that title. Eddie Lawson did it in 89 with Irv Cantamoto on a privateer, privately entered NSR 500. And most recently would be Valentino Rossi winning the last 500cc championship on that Nastro Azura bike but hrc did start to give rossi parts and pieces at the end of the year yeah it, it would be in the moto gp era it would be the first time a satellite team won a championship over the factory which i'm not trying to take anything away from that accomplishment whatsoever it's just it has happened before oh yeah no I'm, i wasn't suggesting that it's never happened before but it's certainly unprecedented in the modern era certainly yes, in the motor the modern era, era. Yes. um so there is that's just another thing that's there that creates pressure and antagonism and you, you know there's a whole martin maybe i think probably the the chip has gone off the shoulder now that he didn't get the works right and bastianini did because he's got the bragging rights over bastianini as well who, who has been injured for you know most of the season it's true but martin's certainly the one that everybody's talking about so from his point of view that's a good place to be isn't it yeah i'm you know I know this one we've talked about it before. Is it better to be the better be the leader or be the guy following? I think they're both going to take turns chasing each other. So I think that's what's going to make this even more interesting. Yeah. I you know, this is the time where I really feel for the crews. 
because well, this is brutal. No, this yeah. is brutal on them. I mean, the the writer has some control over what happens in some way, but you you're, you're sitting there as a mechanic, just my God, let's you know you you start doing really weird stuff like it's a new chain every time the bike leaves, right? You you you're like you're like checking the chain. 5,000 times before you ever let the bike out. You're, you're, you're torquing the, the rear, you do a wheel change and you're torquing the, the, the rear axle like six times just to be sure that you did it to be sure that nothing's wrong. You, I, those guys, you think it's pressure on the riders. And I think people tend to overlook that the guys that wrench on these bikes are under an enormous amount of pressure. Uh, they're going to be sleep deprived because these guys aren't like the, the bike riders themselves where you're, you're changing time zones, but you get to sleep. Uh, in a hotel. Yeah. Okay. That's tough. And I admit it's, it's, it's hard. You, you know, Rich, you've been flying around. I've flown to Europe a couple of times. We know what jet lag can do to you, but these guys get back up that next morning on very little sleep, uncreate everything, set up a pit box, put the bikes together because they're, they're pretty much one together, but there's bits and pieces that still need to be put together, put on them. They got to set two bikes up. They got to go through all that stuff, get it all done, have it ready for practice. And then anything that happens, they have to fix it. It's a long night. Then then they leave, go to the hotel, rinse, wash, repeat kind of a cycle. And these guys are going to be under the pressure cooker. And it just shows you what kind of well-run teams that these guys are, because I, I would say eventually, I guess that there's no way that any of these bikes are going to fail from a mechanical reason because somebody didn't do something along mm. the way. Uh, I think, you know, if I'm running that team, if I'm running Pramac or even if I'm at the Ducati factory team, my guys that are taking care of Bastianini's bike, my guys that are taking care of, of Zarco's bike, Hey, they need to have a helping hand in looking over the guys that are working on Martin's bike and on Ben Yaya's bike. Hey, did you get this? Did you remember that? Did Hey guys, this is over here, that kind of thing. And you work as a team to accomplish that. And that's one of the things I love about motorcycle racing is that even though there's two separate teams inside of a garage, the other side will help at every moment of every time. And that's how they're going to get through all of it. But yeah, uh, I don't have anything else for this one, Rich. Um, we'll keep this one as short as possible because we're in the middle of these triple headers. And I know you probably still got to get dinner yet tonight. Yes. And yeah, long day so. today. Long day and still be longer there. So with all that, folks, remember to email us, Motopod. Oh, yes, Rich has something. Please, Rich. I, something that's just sprung into my mind, Jim, and I can't let this one go. I mean, we'll, I'll touch on this in more detail on a future episode. But um, Tommy Bridewell won the British Superbike Championship at the weekend. Excellent. First time he's won the BSB title. I mean, I have a bit of a soft spot for Tommy. A bit of a uh, sort of chalk and cheese or Marmite character, as we say here many people but a well-deserved win won it by half a point and he won it on the last lap now that's so, what we have that we're gonna have to have a further discussion upon i yeah. might have to go find that race and watch it so we can talk yeah. about it even more that's they, a, i mean bsb as it's done over recent years and they had this new point system this year but it's been you know just a matter of a few points between bridewell and his teammate Irwin for the last few rounds there's been some in to intra team i think is the word isn't it uh, rivalry sort of amping up between the two with a bit of a war words in the public and stuff. It's got a bit, little bit silly at times, if I'm honest. And both have contributed equally to that, I would say. But yeah, that last race was tense. To, yeah, really, really tense because they were so close. Uh, and as I say, on the last lap, Bridal was in third spot 
and was going to lose the championship. He just had to get into second. Bright, uh, Irwin was in the lead and did win the race, final race of the season. But because Bridal got past Carl Ride on the last lap, and this is at Brands Hatch, one of the greatest circuits in the world. Yeah, he took it by half a point. So it was a real kind of, yeah, you, they couldn't have wanted that to end any better from the point of view of the sort of publicity and uh, and whatnot. So yeah, fair play to Tommy Bridewell. I mean, I, I love that guy. Um, people with longer memories will remember his brother who lost his life uh, at a BSB round back in probably somewhere around about 2007, maybe something like that. So um, you always see Tommy sort of pointing at the sky when he's on the grid before a race and stuff. So yeah, a lot of people would have liked to have seen the fact that he picked up the championship this year. I mean, hopefully Glenn will, you know, get a chance to win it in a season or two's time as well, because he deserves it as well. But yeah, just wanted to make a reference to the fact that excellent last round at Brands for the BSB and Bridewell winning the, winning the championship. Alrighty, folks, if you've got questions, comments, concerns, anything, email them to us at motopod at motopodcast.com. If you want to reach out to Rich or myself, uh, you can do that by finding at Richard Jowett, Instagram, X, and Threads. Yep. I am MotoRGV, Instagram, X, and Threads as well. And go check out roadskin.co.uk. Get yourself some nice gear that's fashionable and ride safe. Cheers, everyone. See you next time.